0: Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And we're back after a hiatus, a false start, uh, and then another little baby false start. We are back, and we are back to kick off Ski Month. It's the first, this is what, like our what? fourth annual Ski Month? Third annual third. Ski Month? What is yeah, that? I think this is the third one. Uh, third annual Ski Month, where the next four episodes are going to be all about some schematics, some information that you're going to need in order to help make the next season watchable, because uh, God knows it's probably not going to be football on the field. So we got to teach you to watch something, uh, sch- and this is the month for us to do it.
1: Is schematics the only good thing that Jim Tom Tomsula gave us? Uh, is there anything else?
0: Mustache porn. <laughs>
1: God, I don't want to think
0: about that ever again. Yeah, there uh, you go. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, that's I think that and... <laughs> oh okay so there is there is
1: one other thing uh my fiance points out the the glasses that break apart in the middle you remember that gif oh my god <laughs> tell me that you've seen this right you know what i'm talking about yeah so i guess press conference uh antics glasses there was the fart uh um, yeah so we got yes. those fart and date. then schematics that's the jim that's tomsula right. legacy
0: that's the Tomsula trinity the tonsula trinity breakaway glasses, uh, flatulence, and schematics. I think that does it. Uh, So what do we have here for the rundown this week? There is literally nothing to talk about. We got, uh, I guess we have a a KNBR appearance from the general manager, John Lynch, talking about Lorenzo Jerome and some tackling skills. Is that the big story? Nah, that's not the big story. Uh, Really, the big story is going to be Matt Breida is our future. If you don't know what we're talking about, you haven't been reading Niners Nation long enough. Basically, it is hearkening back to the Thomas Clayton, which was, I think, a six-round pick in the Corey Sheets days where we were were secured to have the leading rusher in the preseason only get cut or not make the team. Uh, And fans basically lost their minds. And there was a fan post on Niners Nation. And it was, I mean, reading it now, it's still pretty funny. But it's about Corey Sheets. And it's Corey Sheets was our future, basically lamenting why we cut him. So it just became a thing on the Niners Nation board's. And every year, without fail, there is a preseason hero that everyone gets mad when they get cut. And this year, I'm nominating Matt Breida not only to break the curse, but to make the team and make an impact. Of course, if you've listened to us, you know that that's, that's no secret. We've been on that train for a while.
1: Yeah, man, that's that's my guy right there. I mean, that was... Uh, yeah, Jordan Plocker pointed, uh, pointed him out to me and and kind of had... uh was like, dude, you need to... After they signed him as an undrafted guy, I was like, hey, you should do your research on this. Because normally, I mean, I don't really... Uh, pay too much attention to undrafted guys. Honestly, I mean, we've kind of talked about it when we do our draft recaps for the last several years. Um, we we focus most of the energy on on the guys towards the top of the draft. And, you know, we get a little bit into the guys in that sixth, seventh round. And then undrafted guys, I mean, it's just so unlikely that they end up making a team and, and, and kind of making uh, a significant impact that it's not worth spending a lot of time. But he was somebody that uh, yeah kind of stuck out and and got pointed out to us and uh, I th- I think he's a talented guy and considering where the roster is at right now I mean the future might be sooner rather than later Uh, when it when it that's comes right. to Matt Breida for sure
0: yeah that's why I changed the hashtag to uh, Matt Breida is our future as opposed to was our future because he's not cut yet still on the team still has a chance let's make this happen so check out that article on Niners Nation uh, it is up I think still near or around circa the front page if you will Uh, It circumlocutes the front page at some point, but you can find it. So this episode is going to be entirely dedicated to the transition to the 4-3. This is what we're going to talk about in the first episode of Ski Month because it's something that we get asked about a lot. We get asked about it on Twitter. We get asked about the fronts, the alignments, what's different, how long is it going to or how difficult will it be to make the change. So that's what we're going to dive deep in here. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of the front. And then next week, we're going to talk about the secondary specifically and what that means for how the 49ers are going to make that transition. But this episode is going to specifically speak to the front, meaning the defensive line and linebackers in the 4-3. And the first thing we have to start off with are going to be the alignments because we're going to use these numbers and terms often throughout the show. And it's best that you get familiar with them now. There is also a picture of... Uh, in the article on Niners Nation. So if you're listening to this and you want just a quick refresher, you can also see this in the article on Niners Nation. But David, uh, what's a quick mnemonic for helping people uh, figure out what the alignments are on the defensive line?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a few things you can point to. And and definitely, um, again, by the time you're listening to this, this post will be up on Niners Nation. Like, pause it now if you have a chance and go look at this chart because it really is, um, I I think, more helpful to kind of visualize these alignments and, and get that kind of mental picture. But uh, the the easiest thing, the two things that I kind of always go to that help me remember it. Um, so everything kind of starts at the center. I mean, we're like uh, we're like Silicon Valley compression algorithm algorithm here with with Pied Piper, right? We're middle out, so everything starts at the center. And
0: <laughs> did you just think of that right I now? I just or thought you of that, that right one?
1: now. No, no, no. I just <laughs> came up with that. I, I never do that, so it was great. Um, so so we got we start with the center, right? And you have even numbers. Even numbers starting head up on the center and working your way out. So head up on the center is zero technique. Head up on the guards are going to be two. Head up on the tackles are going to be four. And then head up on the tight ends are going to be six. Um, And then the next big thing to remember are going to be the outside shades. So the outside shades are your odd uh, technique numbers. So one is going to be outside shade of the center on either side. Um, Three is going to be outside of the guard five is going to be outside of the tackle. Now with the tight ends, things get a little bit weird. So we're going to kind of leave them out for right now. Cause uh, just with, with how all this stuff developed, the the numbers don't make a lot of sense out there. So we're just going to kind of put them aside for the most part. Um, But again, one, three, five are your outside techniques for the offensive lineman. Then the inside techniques, you just add an eye to the head up. So it's really just your two eye and four eye. That's going to be two. I is inside of the guard four I inside of the tackle. So those are, are, are really the primary ones you're going to have to mess with. Usually when you're, you're talking about alignments and, and referencing uh, fronts, you're, you're focused on the guys on the interior. That, those are the, the ones that I think are, the, are probably the most predominant ones and, and the things that are most familiar to help out with. But uh, yeah, that's the easy way to remember it. Even head up, odd outside alignment
0: and when it comes to the the kind of outside numbers you're probably already familiar with a, a couple of them when you, you think of the wide 9 that's usually the person on the outside of the tight end even if there's no tight end there if you see someone aligned super far out there they're they're usually considered a wide 9 so you're you're probably a bit more familiar with those outside tight end uh, numbers than you think but what we're going to be focusing on especially this episode is really going to be between the tackles and so you're going to hear us use you know one or zero or two or two i all of those are going to be um you know things that you should be able to recognize that if not again use the picture and, and think of middle out <laughs> Piper. that was a good one that was a really really good one uh, but the other thing you'll hear us throwing around this episode is going to be strong side versus weak side and in this case we're talking about the offense I don't know about you, but I often get confused when it's like, oh, he plays left defensive end or right defensive end. I, one, I, I think to myself, to the left or right of whom? And then the other, I think, but wait, like, wait where, which way am I facing? Well, like, what, I, I don't know if there's a consensus necessarily. So it's much easier, kind of like when you're on a boat and you say like port side or starboard side, I don't know which is which. Me neither. But I, I was going to say that. I was going to ask you I, which one was which. but right. I, I have no idea um the the port side is the one that faces the land and the other is the one that faces the ocean i don't know that i really should have been
1: football coaches that named those because i was trying to think like you know usually football coaches right and left they find words that have r and l on them and so i was like oh wait port's probably right but then i was like oh shit starboard has got an r in there too so like that's dumb
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no if it were a football coach that named the sides of boats it'd probably be like i don't know uh i don't know elephant and cheetah or some shit (laughs) like rip and liz yeah, there you go, <laughs> Rip and Liz. So, strong side and weak side. Basically, this is the strength of the formation versus the the weakness of the formation. Most commonly, especially if you played you know high school football, this is going to be the side with the tight end. That's going to be the strong side. Uh, but you also have this idea of open versus closed. Now, this is just another way of saying the exact same thing. And the important thing is how defenses identify the strong side because that's what's important, especially when we're talking about defensive fronts. How is the defense going to identify whether or not there's a strong side or a weak side? And there's a couple of different ways to do it. It's pretty obvious when you've got a strength of the formation. You find the tight end, um, but it it gets a bit trickier when you're talking about 100% balanced formations, uh, because that's where it's like, okay, well, where do we go? Uh, And oftentimes, it's just going to be game planned ahead of time.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I think um, you know it's it's important to call out that there can be two different strengths. So a lot of times the front can set a strength, and then the secondary will set a pass strength as well. Um, Obviously, we're focused on the front today, so so that's going to be the part that we kind of narrow in on. But um, yeah, I think the you're you're starting out with where there are more blockers, right? If if I have more blockers to one side of the center, that's going to be my strong side. Um, In the case of like a balance formation, so if you think of um, you know twelve personnel, which is going to be one running back two tight ends, two wide receivers. And then you got a tight end and a wide receiver to each side of the center and the back directly behind the quarterback, right? So you're, you're 100% balanced. Formationally, there is no strength to that formation. So in those situations, defenses, um, again, like you mentioned, will, will usually go to like a, a game plan thing that they're going to set the strength to. So that could be um, to the wide side of the field, which you'll uh, usually hear references the field side as opposed to the boundary. Um, it could be, uh, a more of a tendency thing for that particular opponent. So it could be, okay, they have these two tight ends in, they usually like to run to this one because he's a better blocker. So we're going to set our strength to that particular tight end.
0: We're going to set it um, away from Garrett Salick,
1: <laughs> Right. Um, or it could be like in the case of a shotgun formation, uh, you could say that, uh, we're going to set our strength away from the running backs alignment. So if the back is off to the, uh, the right-hand side, as I'm looking at it from the defense's perspective, will set our strength to the left because most shotgun runs are going to go away from the initial line of in the back. So there are some things like that that defenses will do to, to set their strength. But yeah, a lot of times it comes down to uh, which side of the formation has more blockers. That's going to be our strong side. Uh, and that's how a lot of the fronts are ultimately going to get set is by identifying that first.
0: And identifying where the number of, or the, the strength of the number of blockers is important because especially when you're talking about the running game, usually offenses will run to where they have numbers. When you reduce football sometimes down to its basics, it really is just, where do I have more guys? Where do I have an advantage? Where do I have a place where I can outmuscle this this team? Usually I do that by gaining a numerical advantage on one side of the field. And so the tendency generally is for teams to run to the strong side in some way shape or form Uh, and so that's going to become important when we're talking about those those fronts because it is going to help you identify which front it is
1: definitely so i think the the next thing to kind of focus on is as far as fronts go uh and it's really quick actually uh is there's kind of two basic buckets that you start out with when uh you're looking to categorize these fronts right it's odd versus even So that's kind of the first step, and and it's really simple to identify which one's which. Odd fronts are going to be where a center is covered. So there's either somebody, uh, going back to kind of those techniques that we were mentioning, there's either a zero or a one technique, right? So I have somebody directly over the center or maybe shaded to one side, but the center is covered. There's somebody on top of him. Um, If the center is uncovered, I got nobody uh, in, in either a zero or a one technique there, then I have an even front. So center is uncovered. And that's really all it comes down to. Um, I know I've seen out there that sometimes it gets referenced to the number of, uh, of defensive linemen that you have. So you'll see like, oh, all four three fronts are even fronts because they have four defensive linemen, whereas three four fronts are odd because they have three. And that's really not it. Um, there most, I would say actually four or three fronts, especially in base situations tend to be odd fronts as well, which we'll get into. Um, and that's because they have somebody shading the center.
0: So odd versus even and kind of strong side, weak side, and some of the number techniques. Those are the things that we're going to be referencing throughout the show. Uh, as we start to unpack the different fronts that you're going to see the 49ers run next year, because it is going to be a lot of varied fronts that you'll see. While, yes, Salah's bringing the 4-3 under defense, and that's going to be one of the major formations that you'll see. You're going to see a lot of other fronts, and, and you can really narrow it down to about four major fronts that you're going to see. The 49ers run under the new defensive coordinator with their new 4-3. And the first defensive front that you're going to see is going to be the Oki front.
1: And so, and this is actually more one I I think that uh, should be familiar from the three four days, right? So I don't know how much they'll see this one in particular here, but I wanted we wanted to call this one out.
0: We're gonna ease Um, them in,
1: yeah. To to know that like this is kind of where we started uh, as far as the three four that we've been running a lot here, and uh, you know, it in the three four even had a little bit of the other ones, but this is kind of what everybody thinks of when you picture that um, you know base three four formation in Madden, right? Is the Oki front, and that's going to give us uh a zero technique nose and two four techniques meaning i have a, a defensive tackle a nose tackle that's head up on the center and i have two defensive ends that are head up on the tackles and so that's my Oki front this is kind of uh the the old school um sort of two gapping which we're going to get more into that as well but that's the the old school three four front that everybody kind of thinks of by default
0: So remember that Okie front, you've got the four, which is an even number, so it's head up on the tackle, and you've got a zero, which is head up over the center. So this Okie front was really created in Oklahoma, hence the name. That one's easy to remember, uh, with good old Wilkinson, Bud Wilkinson. He had a 5-2 defense, and uh, I guess back in the day, you basically had two giant scrums in the middle of the field, right? They didn't have anyone covering uh, covering deep because no one ever passed the ball. So you had you know five, six, seven guys on the actual line of scrimmage, and it was pretty easy. You just line up in front of an offensive lineman, and off you go. Well, all of a sudden, the game starts to change. The game starts to evolve. And one of the differences that Bud Wilkinson used uh, in Oklahoma was that he dropped his defensive guards off of the defensive line, effectively making them linebackers. And all of a sudden, you've got the person over the center and the two defensive tackles over the tackles. Uh, and then eventually Chuck Fairbanks, who was on that Oklahoma staff, goes to the Patriots in 1973, brings that defensive look, the 5-2 to New England, and pairs that with his defensive coordinator, Hank Bulla, and they create what we now know as the modern two-gap 3-4. It's known as the, the Fairbanks Bulla, basically, 3-4, and that's what you'll hear people refer to when they're talking about that two-gap 3-4 because th- this was the, the origin of the Okie front, and they thought, well— we can go ahead and still stop the run if we can get two really big dudes or one really big dude to cover two gaps uh, and still maintain our gap integrity.
1: It's kind of funny to think that uh, a lot of these things that are, I guess, becoming a little bit more popular that we're learning about now that like started back uh, in new England and San Francisco, right? Like obviously uh, a lot of the stuff that Pete Carroll does originated with San Francisco. And we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit here in a minute, but uh, yeah, it's just kind of funny to think that like, oh, now New England, you know, with Belichick obviously is, um, you know, doing a lot of interesting things in terms of what they do with their fronts. And, and you have this kind of classic thing that really started in the NFL back there with the Patriots in the 70s. It's just kind of interesting to me that that things start there.
0: Well, what's what's super interesting about just the way that defenses have evolved is that it is always it always feels like the defense is a reaction to an evolution in the offense. And and that's yeah. I mean ultimately, and we'll talk about some of this as we go through. But you know, you had offenses beginning to pass and be and offenses beginning to kind of attack the edges of certain defenses, and then defensive coordinators adjust, and then the offense adjusts, and then you end up getting. It, it's really a giant chess match, which uh, is really interesting to read about if if you're ever into kind of the history of football. But um, but yeah, but that's the Oki front. It's going to be you know four zero four. Uh, head up on the tackle, zero head up on the center, and then a four technique on the other side, head up on the tackle. Uh, and this one is indeed an odd front. Why is it an odd front, David? Center is covered. Damn right. Uh, so that's the Okie front. That's what you've been used to seeing on base downs. Uh, and, and that's something that you're, you might see every now and again, especially if you have like a, a three, three, five alignment in nickel. Um, but you're, you're not going to see that as often as you did, uh, but it is going to be a front that you will see in San Francisco, perhaps rarely fun fact, uh, Oklahoma, which I hate Oklahoma because you know, I went to Texas, (laughs) but, uh, from the third game of the 1953 of the 1953 season through the seventh game of the 1957 season, uh, Wilkinson's team was undefeated 47 games. That's still the record for the most consecutive games uh, without a loss, which is a lot of games because back then large
1: number of games,
0: because back then you didn't have uh, you didn't have like, you know, 10, 12 game seasons. You had, you know, like, you know, six or eight or 10 game seasons. And and that was that. But yeah. Um, Other fun fact. uh, What time is it, David?
1: Like here, it's like
0: 1030 almost. And OU still sucks. So let's get to the other front, uh, which is uh, the bear front. Let's talk. Uh, and the bear front, this is one that a lot of people are probably familiar with. This is going to be an alignment that got its name from the 1985 Bears who used this front as a part of the vaunted 46 defense. Uh, so, David, what the hell is the bear front?
1: Um, so the bear front's actually going to be not all that dissimilar from the Oki front in terms of the, the basic alignment. Basically all you're doing is taking those defensive ends that were again, head up on your tackle and you're kicking them down inside a shade. So now those defensive ends become defensive tackles and they're a, a three technique. So I still have my zero technique nose tackle, my guy head up on the center. Now I have two guys shading the guards and really so, so the three technique, the three zero three uh, again, if you got kind of go across there, um, is, is I guess like the standard bear alignment. You can play with it a little bit. Really. It's the, the kind of key parts are going to be, I need a guy head up on the center at a zero technique. That's going to be kind of a two gapping nose tackle. And then I have two B gap players that are covering up. So that could be a three, maybe you kick him out wide, do a four I, if you really want to, but he's lined up in that B gap. Um, and so that's the, the, going to be the key thing there. And it can really, um, you know, mess with a lot of different run concepts it, it makes it difficult um because you can't really create a lot of double teams against this front it becomes difficult to do that which is key for you know a lot of zone runs it's key on the play side of a lot of gap runs so uh it, it can really kind of screw with some different things there and obviously the, the 85 bears had a, a lot of success with it but it's still something that you see um used maybe not as regular as that but uh certainly a lot of teams will use that on occasion today
0: So this was the innovation of the bare front. It was indeed a front that was intended to stop the run, and it was intended to really put a lot of players on the line of scrimmage. Now, in in modern times, the bare front is used specifically for a lot of those options, like to prevent against uh, midline options and to prevent against the gap runs, because oftentimes those runs are predicated off of a double team at the point of attack. And a double team at the point of attack, if you're the offensive line, is really easy If you've got center guard guard going up against a defensive tackle on one side or a defensive tackle on the other side, it makes it uh, a double team a little easier. Um, Or it allows the center to get up to the second level. Now, all of a sudden, the interior is clogged and double teams become really, really difficult. This is why you see the Seattle Seahawks often play a bare front against the 49ers. Uh, whether it be the Chip Kelly 49ers or whether it be the Jim Harbaugh 49ers, especially if you knew they were going to be a power-heavy game or, or if it was going to be a power-heavy game because it is going to make it much more difficult to execute those runs. Uh, and so this is, again, another reaction to the run-heavy offenses in the 70s and 80s, uh, and there was a, a game where I think they were up against the 81 Bears, and they, unle- they this was the debut of the Bear. Uh, defense or the the bare front, um, and the Chargers are like, I don't even know what the hell's happening. Uh, and it's it's actually a really fun story if you want to read like the story of when the the front debuted against the eighty one Chargers. Uh, they dared them to pass, and it it didn't work all that well because they couldn't.
1: Um, and this is something that they're I would expect the 49ers to see a lot more often. Maybe I I don't know how much they use it themselves defensively, um, but I I expect them to kind of see that a decent amount because. Uh, again with the double teams and we've talked about this i think at length the last couple of years uh, during scheme month with with uh the zone blocking scheme right and and zone blocking is basically entirely predicated on creating double teams you know especially inside zone but even the outside zone and usually you start with those two guys it's it's what you refer to as a combo block meaning you're starting with a guy at the line of scrimmage level a defensive lineman And then eventually one of those guys, if things work well, is going to work their way up to the second level and pick off a linebacker. So when all of a sudden you have more players along the line of scrimmage, uh, it it makes it more difficult, if not impossible, depending on where your linebackers are at, um, you know, in order to uh, get some of those guys off the line of scrimmage and up to the second level. So I I would definitely expect... um, This was something actually that the Patriots ran uh, pretty heavily in the Super Bowl against the Falcons. So again, to... Uh, combat Kyle Shanahan's offense in that running game. So um, this is something that, again, we may not see as much from the 49ers defense, but we will see it on the other side of the ball a decent amount, I think.
0: So that's the bare front. Now we get into the more common 4-3 alignments that you know and love, the over front and the under front. And when we talk about these 4-3 alignments, and David's going to give you what the actual alignment is here just in a second. Um, First, a quick note about the 4-3. The the origin of the 4-3 really was with Tom Landry in the 60s. And it became super popular, of course, that at least this version of this defense has origins in San Francisco with Pete Carroll. And then he, of course, made it, you know, re-famous, I guess, if you will, uh, after you've got, let's say, the Tampa 2, uh, which made Warren Sapp famous. And that was a, a particular version of this with the three technique. And then you've also got Pete Carroll, who made it re-famous again here with the, the specific 4-3 under in Seattle. But the 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 interesting part about the origins of the 4-3 was that it was, again, another reaction to what was happening on offense. And you had defenses that were all crowded against the line. And then you had offenses that were beginning to have short passes along the the kind of middle of the field where you had no linebackers. So you end up dropping a linebacker or two into that soft zone area. But then you've got teams that started to flank on the edges. And so what ended up happening was you started dropping the the outside what basically what were defensive ends into more traditional linebacker spots, and you left that four-man line. Uh, and that was the, one of the first times that you had a seven-person front up at the front. And, and that then eventually you know, was, was something that did not do too well against the run because when all the defensive linemen were head up, it was super easy for an offensive lineman to turn the defensive tackle one way or another. So what Tom Landry did was he was like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and make this less easy for you to block my defensive guys and I'm going to just move them into the gap. And that was basically the birth of what we now know as a three technique. It isolated the defensive tackle to make it a bit more difficult for the offensive lineman to manipulate them and turn them to one side or the other.
1: Yeah. And I think we really saw this, you know, the, the kind of uh, taking that to another level, even in becoming more aggressive with it, with uh, you know, the Miami four, three was, is also really Jamie commonly yep. yeah, associated with the, the, the overfront. And so that was, Uh, Jimmy Johnson, when he was at the University of Miami, of course, takes that with him uh, to the Cowboys when he comes to the NFL. And that really uh, was something that kind of exploded for a while. That uh, kind of attacking one gap four three over scheme uh, was really, really uh, predominantly used in the NFL kind of after Jimmy Johnson brought that there. So, yeah, and and really the key thing, I mean, you mentioned the three technique and the three technique is kind of the key piece uh, in, in identifying the over and the under right where that three technique lines up. Uh, is going to be the part that you kind of want to focus on. And so in the overfront, the three technique is going to align to the strong side of the formation. So again, that's w- which side has more blockers, though, you know, in a, in a base formation, that's going to be which side has the tight end on it. That's where my three technique t- technique goes. And then on the weak side, I have my shaded don'ts tackler, my one technique. So that's going to be the thing to focus on with the overfront. Um, again, where's the three technique? If he's on the strong side, most likely going to be looking at an over.
0: Yeah, and the mnemonic I use to remember this is, especially for the over front, the the front or the line is shifted over to the strong side. And that's not really 100% accurate. The shift, it's not entirely shifted, right? But basically, the three technique is over to the strong side. That's how I remember it when I'm looking at Phil. And I'm like, all right, what are they in? Where's the strong side? Is there a three technique over there? If so, it's more than likely an over front.
1: And so and then just to flip that, so rolling right into, I think, the, the underfront, because these two, um, you know, get kind of lumped together, I think, a lot. And, and it's really just the reverse of that. Right. So now all of a sudden in the under front, uh, we're, we're shifting away from the strong side. Right. So if you view uh, the four three where everything was kind of balanced and, and everything was, you know, pre Landry, where it was uh, kind of head up on the guards and everything was it was kind of even, you know, um, we shifted that over to the strong side and over front. Or now we're shifting it away from the tight end in the under. So now my three technique is going to be on the weak side, and my shaded nose tackle is on the strong side. My one technique there, and so um, yeah, they, these guys uh, are become once you focus on those two things, and if you kind of I think block out a lot of the other stuff because there can be some different window dressing with that, um, and and where the defensive ends line, line up are going to depend a lot on uh, you know how many players you have along the line of scrimmage and do I have a, one or multiple tight ends to my side can all affect that sort of thing. But if you focus on those defensive tackles, um, I think it becomes really easy just to see, okay, where's my three technique at that's going to help me determine over or under.
0: So the under defense, and, and when you think about what makes the, the under alignment really, or what made it really popular, you think of the Tampa two defense with Tony Dungy, Monty Kiffin, Warren Sapp, they primarily played a four, three under, and it basically isolated Warren Sapp uh, on some poor weak side guard, and that usually did not end well for that weak side guard. Uh, and that's really the beauty of of the three technique in the four three is that by aligning him in you know either the strong side or the weak side, you basically isolate and can generally create a one on one alignment on the interior of the of, of the line for what should be one of your better pass rushers. And and that's something again to remember when we start talking about the 49ers specific pieces of this transition and specifically, uh, DeForest Buckner, because he's going to be playing that three technique. So those are the fronts. You've got the, the kind of, you know, odd versus even, which is whether or not the center is covered. You've got the traditional three, four Oakey front from Oklahoma and Bud Wilkinson. You've got the bear front, which of course, again, the bears in 1985, where you've got the, both the both guards and the center covered in a three zero three, and then you've got your over and your under, which are defined by where the three technique is, whether he is over to the strong side or under to the weak side. I still don't understand why they call it under, but whatever. And I, think I think you just should, remember over, and the and the opposite is under. I
1: mean, I th- I think that's generally the idea. I mean, you get with the, with the over, I'm sh- where I'm shifting, uh, you know, the the line one way and shifting the linebackers kind of the other way from what that original kind of standard four three was i think is generally the idea but uh i i don't know i always get i think I, that confuses me even more i just like okay where's the three technique and that's how i i kind of uh lean on it and but i think um the other thing to call out too is that you'll notice um that all of the fronts that we talked about there Oki bear over and under are all odd fronts because they all have somebody over the center um usually you're even fronts and there there certainly are some exceptions to this Um, but those are predominantly going to be passing down fronts. I think in today's NFL, like when you get into nickel fronts, you get into third down, especially, um, and, and you kind of start widening those defensive tackles a little bit. It's not as important for me to have somebody, uh, right directly over the center to kind of screw with the, the, the run game. Um, we can start to widen those guys out, get them into the B gaps even, and, uh, you know, really look to, to get after the quarterback. And so, Um, that's where you'll see those predominantly you you'll every once in a while you'll see teams, you know, go with maybe like a two I and a three technique. So I don't have anybody, uh, you know, technically over the center there, but it's still an a gap and a B gap player, which is, um, really what you're getting in the over and under as well. So, uh, something to, to keep in mind there.
0: So let's talk then a bit about the gap assignments because you've made reference a couple of times to A-gap and B-gap, and these gaps are really important because they are the foundation of how defenses really defend against the run. And we're going to take a moment to just talk about what one-gapping and two-gapping is and, and why maybe the transition of the 4-3 isn't going to hurt as much as, as many thought. I mean, first things are that gaps are a big deal. The You hear oftentimes about being gap sound. You want to, as a defense basically prevent any space for a running back to get through. At a basic level, that's how you defend the run. And you can do that a couple of different ways. The one gapping defender is basically going to put a defender in a single gap, and the responsibility of that defender is to control your gap. Oftentimes the image that you draw up in your head, I know sometimes it happens in my head as well, is a defender who goes into that one gap and knifes through that one gap and is like three yards in the backfield. And if that's the only guy who's three yards in the backfield, that sometimes often isn't exactly a desirable outcome because he creates a humongous hole in that line. And oftentimes he overruns the play. So oftentimes what you're looking for with that one gap player is an attack and react mentality. You attack the gap and you react to what you see. You want to get shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the offensive linemen. If you're shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with them, you've got them beat. They can't reach back and get you. Uh, we call that getting uh, Zane beatled uh, or maybe getting devied, or something like that. Uh, but uh, don't if don't remind depend-
1: me. I've been watching too much of that over the last couple of weeks. I was watching all day today pretty much, and I was just like, oh, my God, this is painful.
0: David did not get post traumatic stress disorder from Iraq. He got it from the (laughs) offense. From
1: watching Zane Beatles and uh, Josh Garnett try to fucking pass protect. (laughs)
0: Uh, So the defender is going to attack the gap, look to penetrate, and then react to what they see. Their goal, quite simply, is to constrict the space and funnel the ball inside to the unblocked defender. The key here is going to be to funnel the ball inside of the unblocked defender. So they don't just want to shoot willy-nilly through the gap, even though it is an aggressive, penetrating, one-gap you know, kind of scheme. Uh, remember, what defensive coordinator is going to say, like, no, nah, we want our dude to be pretty passive. i on the lay back, <laughs> get blocked. No, the, the aggressive doesn't mean absurd and out of control. It means you want to control your gap, and funnel the ball carrier inside of the unblocked defender.
1: Yeah, and there, there are going to be varying flavors to all this, right? Like, I think, we, you know, it's important to, to point out that with all of this stuff, we try to hit, um, you know, kind of the most general common versions of these things to make it, you know, the easiest to kind of understand. But, um, you know, each coach is going to have his own little different flavor on this. And, you know, some coaches may prefer that in their one-gap scheme, they do want everybody kind of, you know, getting as much penetration as possible. Other guys want, you know, maybe sitting more along the line of scrimmage or just on the other side of the line of scrimmage. Um, I think the the kind of foundations of all of that are very similar. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, you know, realize that there are many, many variations of this stuff depending on the coach. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, what you pointed out there with one gap is is really the big thing. You know, I want to funnel everything inside. Um, usually the other thing uh, that you want to kind of recognize is that, However many blockers I have, so if we keep it really, really basic, right, Um, and say I only have my five offensive linemen up front there, Uh, or let's even go with a tight end, I think that's a little bit more common. So I have six blockers up there potentially. So in order to fill every gap, that means I have seven gaps. I need one guy up there. Well, if I have seven guys up in the box as a defense, they still only have six blockers. So if I have everybody accounted for, there's going to be one unblocked defender, and that's who we're trying to funnel everything to, um, in kind of that one gap scenario there. So I think just to kind of give you an idea that you know, you're like, who's unblocked? How's this guy unblocked? Well, that's generally the idea. In and in a base situation, I have one more defender up there than they have blockers because I need to account for every single gap that's available. And that's the guy that we want, you know, making the tackle and, and kind of getting up there and funneling everything to.
0: So then you get to your two gap scheme. And in a two-gap, it's going to be a little different because rather than ha- needing seven guys necessarily up to account for all the gaps, you've got line of scrimmage defenders that are assigned to the gap to each side of a blocker. And their responsibility is to control the blocker, shed them, and get into the appropriate gap once the runner has declared where he's going to go. This is what Justin Smith did so well. This is what the 49ers of you know the Jim Harbaugh era did so well in base downs is they were able to control their blocker and get towards the ball. And that means that you can cover more gaps with fewer players. And so this is going to be a read and attack philosophy. If in the one gap it's attack and react, the two gap is going to be the read and attack. And they're going to want to control the blocker, read the play and then attack the appropriate gap once the runner has declared. So if you think of the one gap as kind of like get to your spot and then react to where the runner goes, the two-gap is going to be like, figure out where your spot's supposed to be, then go get there. Uh, and the key here is going to be to clog up the interior, keep the linebackers free, and spill the ball to fast support. So whereas with the one-gap, you want to funnel the ball to the inside, uh, to the inside unblocked defender. In a two-gap scenario, you basically want to keep your linebackers clean. You want to let uh, or Navarro Bowman and Patrick Willis uh, go get to the ball as quick as they can because that's, well, that's what they do. Uh, and you want to keep them as clean as humanly possible so they can do that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, those kind of different end goals, right, are, are really important to know, because when you're when you're watching this stuff happen and OK, and now I've been able to identify, I know that this team is playing one gap or two gap um, and I need to know what their kind of end goal is. If all of a sudden I if I'm unsure of that and I see this runner kind of bouncing outside and I think, well, I've heard that that's a bad thing. I should have a contained guy out there and Um, You know, we need to be forcing everything back to the middle. That's not every defense's goals. You know, some teams um, are from a run fit standpoint designed to spill things outside uh, and kind of force everything to the sideline. Others are going to force the ball inside like we talked about with one gap. So uh, you definitely want to pay attention to that distinction. Um, The other big call out, I think, is that um, two gap in the sense of that Okie front that we talked about at the beginning, you know, where everybody's kind of two gapping along the defensive line that really doesn't exist that much in today's NFL. It's, I think, really the 49ers last year were probably one of the, the only teams left that were running that type of defense a significant amount. Um, but most 3-4 defenses, even if that's your base, um, they're still running under fronts, they're still running over fronts, you know, fronts that are typically associated with 4-3 defenses. Um, and and the, really the only thing that changes is whether one of the guys on the edge, on the perimeter there, has his hand on the ground or is standing up in a two-point stance. And uh, you know, from uh they're they're still playing one gap principles a lot of the time. Um, so there's not a huge difference there. Uh I, I think that's really important to note. A lot of times what you're you're gonna see in maybe more modern fronts is that maybe I have one defender that's two gapping. So it's not everybody along the defensive front. Most everybody is going to uh still be just playing their single gap, but I might have one guy on the strong side of the defense that's two gapping. And what that allows me to do is, so remember before in the one gap where I mentioned, okay, I need to have one more defender in the box to account for for all of the gaps, right? And one more defender than they have blockers to get them all. Well, now if I all of a sudden I make one of those defenders a two-gap player, I can remove a guy from the box and get him back in a better uh, position to to play the pass. So those are the kind of things that I think you see more with uh, with modern defenses, and that's especially what we're going to be um, you know, moving away from from the 49ers uh, specifically, I, I wouldn't imagine that we see, you know, a whole lot of two gapping principles this year.
0: And that's what you that's really what it means to be a hybrid defense. When you hear the term hybrid defense, it's usually not some odd hybrid of like, you know, oh, they have hybrid positions or they play D.E. and linebacker. It's more often than not it a combination of one gapping and two gapping on the same play with the same people. And so oftentimes you'll hear, you know, we play a 3-4 four with 4-3 four, personnel or we play a 4-3, or 3-4 personnel. I forget exactly what the quote was. But those are the kinds of things that defensive coordinators are alluding to when they're making those comments is that most modern defenses are not going to be one or the other. They're going to take blends of these different things on any given play to try and devise an advantage against an offense. So how the hell can you identify what this looks like? How can you identify who is going to be two-gapping, who is going to be one-gapping, and what their responsibility and assignments are. Uh, because, you know, you know, you love the internet. They want to assign blame. They want to figure out what they're supposed to do. Everybody Who's wants to fault? assign blame. Who's at fault? Who did it? Whose goddamn fault is it? All right? Uh, that's what you want to do. So how can you identify it? Well, number one, is the player attempting to control the gap or control the blocker? Two-gap defenders are looking to get their hands into the chest of the blocker and stay flat or square to the line of scrimmage, keep their eyes in the backfield, and then react and shed when the runner comes into their gap. So that's what a two-gapper is looking to do. Now, a one-gapper, of course, is not necessarily going to be looking to control the blocker. They're not going to want to try and get their hands into the chest. They're going to want to make a move into a gap, maybe through a swim or a rip, and then they're going to react once they see and they're, they're responsible for their gap. So that's how you can kind of help identify who is doing what are they looking to control the blocker by getting their hands into the chest or are they looking to get into the gap?
1: Yeah, I think the, the thing that you have to start with, assume that they're playing one gap. And today, if, if you, if you're trying to, you know, if you're watching film, you got game pass up and you're looking at that end zone view uh, and you're trying to kind of discern all of this stuff, assume, assume with everything first, that it's one gap you kind of need at this point with the way today's game is you need some overwhelming evidence to really point to, to, to it being two gap, I think most of the time. So, um, yeah, I, I think the other thing that I would, uh, that would add that I think helps me identify it a little bit, um, is focus on the hips. Hips are, are really going to be the big thing. So, uh, if, if a defender, joke. <laughs> yeah, if a defender is, uh, is playing one gap right in the run game, especially, and especially if it's one that's, maybe not quite as aggressive where they don't want everybody flying upfield and, and trying to penetrate as much as possible. They they um, kind of want to get in the gap and, and stay a little bit more patient at the line of scrimmage. Those defenders especially are looking to get their hips into their assigned gap because that's how they can come off the blocker and actually make a play. If they're just kind of poking their head out there in that gap, I mean, they may be doing that and still one gapping. That's just bad news for them because – That, you know, just poking your head in the gap isn't going to allow you to get off of that blocker and actually be able to make a play if a runner comes your direction. So that's another thing to focus on. But, yeah, with those two gap defenders, you know, they're going to get into the chest and and they're going to be peeking over the shoulder. You know, watch that helmet. You can learn a lot, I think, just in general um, by watching kind of that stripe down the middle of the helmet and seeing Mm -hmm. where players are looking and and you really get a feel for um, what they're trying to do, right, what they're trying to accomplish on a given play. And, and so that's what you're going to see from those two gap defenders is hands in the chest. I'm trying to create a little bit of separation there. I'm not really looking to, to move things backward all that much. Um, and I'm peeking into the backfield to see where the runner's at so that I can make my move if he comes my way.
0: So a word then about the kind of gap assignment, because remember that defending the run for the front is very much about defending a gap and being gap sound. And the, the gaps that a defender will have can change based on whether the ball is running towards them or whether the ball is away from them. And there are also gap exchanges. We've talked a lot about gap exchanges uh, in defending the zone read where you've got a linebacker that scrapes over the top and a defensive end that kind of crashes down and they, they exchange gaps. So where a player lines up is not necessarily if just because they're lined up in that B gap doesn't mean that their ultimate responsibility is going to be the B gap. So when and then, of course, you've got stunts and things like that that are going to help identify, you know, what that are going to help create confusion for the offense by the defense. So ultimately, when you're looking at the way a defense is constructed, you can't just narrow in on a single player and say, oh, they were a falter necessarily, you know, or they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Look at that guy. He runs into the B gap, but he was over the A gap. That might be his assignment. You have to look at the whole picture of a defense and you have to look at how they combine to fill the different gaps after the snap and where their initial step takes them looking at initial steps. When you're looking at film is really helpful because the, the basic principle is that players on their initial step are going to want to go to where they should be going. You don't like if they know where they're going anyway, right? I, <laughs> uh, I, which is, which is a whole different thing. I, but
1: <laughs> I mean, that's, that's fair. Uh, uh, Josh Garnett makes me wonder that all the time. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, there there are very few assumptions that I really make, I think, going in to try to watch any tape, right? Um, one of them, though, is that for the most part, we can assume that players are trying to execute their assignment. They're trying to do what they're supposed to do, right? They're not always going to succeed in that goal. But generally speaking, nobody's out there like throwing games and saying, you know what, um, uh, as a defense here, I'm going to leave my gap. Uh, wide open. I'm going to let this runner go through, right? Like that. that's not the, the approach that you're seeing from these guys. So if you go in with the assumption that they are trying to carry out my assignment, when you see them do something that you maybe don't expect, right? You see a guy uh, on the defensive line, like you mentioned, that's in the B gap that jumps into the A gap. Uh, rather than your first reaction being, he's wrong, he's screwed up, which is what I think a lot of people want to do, Um, you know, especially a lot of people uh, on on the internet that are trying to kind of break this stuff down. um, You know, they want to say, Oh, he jumped out of his gap. That's bad. I know everybody's supposed to have a gap. Um, And and I think it's important to know that that's it's a little bit more flexible than that, right? Yes, everybody's assigned a gap, but it's not always the gap that they're aligned in. Um, Teams do a lot of different things up front, um, you know, to try to create confusion for the blocking schemes to screw stuff up. Um, you see, you know, stunts. I think inside, kind of against the grain of of zone schemes, a lot because that if you get one guy that can kind of jump inside a gap and get into the backfield, that screws timing up on those outside zone plays so much. And so you see that a lot against zone teams. Um, so I think, yeah, you have to really kind of zoom out and see. Okay, well, if this guy left the gap that he was over initially and went into this one, well, was somebody there to take his place? And yeah, if you see a linebacker scraping over the top to fill that then yeah, that was probably intentional. And and that's not something um, that you should really be knocking a player for. So uh, all of those, I think, are important things to keep in mind. Try to view the the entirety of that defensive front and kind of what everybody's doing rather than focusing in on one individual player and trying to determine whether he's right or wrong.
0: So let's talk very briefly then about some of pass rushing principles because that is going to be a big part of the front. And we're not going to get into any exotic blitzes or any fire zones or anything like that. But we are going to talk about some basic pass rushing principles because I think they are important when we start talking about the, the different components the 49ers are going to need the transition and transition well in order for this defense to be good. Because you've got, I think you've got a lot of really optimistic people, a lot of optimistic 49ers fans right now about the defense and they're thinking, oh, how good can this defense be? And you've, I think there was an NFL.com story where someone, someone said the 49ers linebacking core is top five in the NFL um and and so it's <laughs> oh God, sorry, sorry,' I, I continue love, uh, I love it when you giggle when you hear shit like that, it's so funny, but it, it's it's I think people are beginning to get a little bit like, oh my God, how good can this defense be and and there's still you know the, I don't think the transition is going to be as big of a deal as many people think, but there's still going to be a lot of things that need to go well in order for this defense to perform, even to what I would say is an n f l average level of competence. Um and so let's talk a little bit about the basic pass rush principles before we then talk about some of the specific transitions points for the 49ers.
1: Yeah, I think the the focus that we want uh really to to kind of hammer home here is is your basic four-man rush, right? So as you mentioned, we're not getting into uh really even stunts or or blitzes or anything like that. We're we're just talking standard I'm in you know it's third and six and I'm in my nickel package I got four defensive linemen up there and I'm just sending those four right how what what are those guys trying to accomplish um, beyond the obvious of, of getting to the quarterback you know how are they going uh, going about doing that um, and, and kind of how does all that work together uh, as as a whole unit so I think the place to start right is just breaking those guys up into uh, the way that I think most people do kind of naturally right Is I got my outside guys I got my edge rushers and then I got my interior rushers um, and those two roles are doing two different things. So on the edge, I'm looking to contain, I need to be on the outside. My aiming point is going to be kind of that back shoulder of the quarterback, right? I'm, if you think about, uh, I I'm trying to get back there and knock the ball out, right? That back shoulder is where the, the quarterback's going to be raising the ball to. Um, that's what I'm going after. I want to get that ball out of his hands essentially. So that's working outside of the quarterback and, and kind of making sure that when he, uh, hits the back of his drop there and, and you know, he doesn't see that first option open. He's looking to step up that he's stepping up into the pocket and not necessarily trying to break contain and get outside where he can start to, to kind of create and make things happen a little bit more. And then on the inside, you know, those guys are looking to push the pocket backwards. So they're trying to limit the space that that quarterback has to step up. If the contain guys are doing their job correctly. Right. Um, and the big thing to, I think, point out with the interior guys, because The edge guys, it's pretty simple, right? They're working against the tackles. They're usually going to be working outside. You know, sure, you'll see some inside counters and stuff like that on occasion, but their responsibility is to stay outside the tackle and get to that back shoulder. With the inside guys, usually you're going to see an A-gap rusher, so somebody that's between the center and the guard, and then a B-gap rusher, which is going to be outside that three-technique position, right, outside the guard. Um, and that three technique is really the most important part of all this stuff is because that's the one guy within that four man front that has a true two way go. And by two way go, I mean, he is free, he is absolutely free to go inside or outside that guard. It doesn't matter. And so he's got the most flexibility of anybody along that four man front to kind of execute his job and execute his responsibility. And so that's where you start thinking about all of the great three techniques that, uh, you know, have been in some of these 4-3 defenses, right? The the Warren Saps of the world. And, uh, you know, even when you look at uh, just now in sub packages, guys like Michael Bennett kicking down in there It's in Seattle, right? Think that those interior rushers, the kind of ones that are the big names that you know, most of the time they're that B-gap rusher. They're that three technique that has a two-way go and is one-on-one with the guard. And that's where they can create a lot of damage.
0: So basically, what we've been talking about for the last, I don't know, probably 10, 11 minutes or so is the importance of that three technique. And that three technique is really going to be DeForest Buckner. And and that's going to be, I think, the first thing that we'll talk about here when we get into the 49ers specific transition points. What are going to be the things that this team is going to need to do well in order to make this defensive transition effective? And the first is really going to be that three technique. And that's going to be DeForest Buckner playing inside. And I don't know the answer to whether or not he's going to be a good three technique. But I do have a couple of questions. <laughs> um, first and foremost, David, what, do you think that his height is going to be a disadvantage to him playing against smaller guards? Because, you know, he was really, really he was good last year, but he did have some problems with leverage. And he is six seven. And, you know, that's something to consider when you're on the interior. Is that going to be a problem for DeForest Buckner's transition to the three to the three technique?
1: Um, I think it could be if he's if it's not a focus for him. Right. I I think you can see, uh, you know, and it's the obvious example that everybody points to. But really, he's played in a similar role. And and that's Clayus Campbell. You know, Clayus Campbell, Arizona has moved. You know, they've they're still a three, four team, I believe. But, um, you know, they have really been. Uh, you know, more of a one-gap team, and, and Clayus Campbell moves all along their defensive front there, and he spends a lot of time playing, um, you know, inside as a three technique, uh, especially in, in kind of those sub-packages there. And I, I think you see him able to, um, you know, play with leverage. It's just something that has to be a focus for him, right? It has to be a priority. Um, because otherwise, when you do get in those base situations, I mean, the the good thing is that in the under front, right, they're playing under most of the time, I would I would expect, Um, he's going to be on the weak side, which, which does help him a little bit. It's going to be, um, you know, usually fewer double teams you're going to see at that spot in the run game. Um, and and so it's just, you know, you're not having runs directly at you quite as frequently. Usually they're going away. So he has, uh, you know, the ability to be a little bit more aggressive and kind of penetrate and get and chase the playback, uh, you know, from the, from the backside there, essentially. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, teams could make that a, a point to maybe, okay, if it's really been a problem for him and he's not, um, you know, showing the ability to kind of anchor in there and, and play with good leverage, uh, that they're going to kind of scheme to run more weak side run concepts and kind of attack him in that, uh, you, you could certainly see that, but I, I think he's a good enough player and I've seen enough from him and, uh, you know, enough growth uh over the, from just what we saw from him in Oregon to you know the, the the rookie season last year um that I, I think he's gonna be venting. He's probably the guy that I think I'm least worried about uh in the transition along the D line.
0: Would you put any other player at the three technique?
1: Uh no. Not I mean in, not on more than a rotational basis, right? So yeah I right. think yeah you'll you'll definitely see other guys see time there, but it should should somebody else be getting more reps at, you know, more snaps at three technique than DeForest Buckner? No, I don't think so.
0: All right, so now let's talk a little bit about the the position du jour, the Leo, because the, the this is going to be one of the other components of this defense that's going to need to develop a little bit, or, or we're going to need to get production out of this position in order for this defense to succeed. Now, when you think about the the alignments that we've been talking about so far, the Leo is usually going to be the weak side pass rusher that's usually aligned uh, a little wider on the outside of the tackle and so far this is going to be eric armstead and and this is going to be this this is going to be the experiment of the year yeah because that this the, the textbook definition of a leo which is really going to be you know one of your featured pass rushers on the outside remember that this pass rusher is working to the outside they're responsible for contain and what generally defines their success is a bit, of, a bit of athleticism in getting off the ball. They're usually a little faster, and especially in Pete Carroll's defense, they're a bit more athletic. Eric Armstead doesn't fit the athletic profile of anyone who's ever been successful at Leo. And that doesn't mean that he necessarily won't be, but it means the chips are stacked against him. It's the same argument that we use for drafting really athletic players later in the draft. Who knows if they're going to succeed? But you don't want to have them overcome both a lack of athleticism and a lack of whatever it was that pushed them down into the sixth or seventh round. And this is why players like Lorenzo Jerome and Matt Breida are so enticing because they do have the physical components to succeed if they could just put everything else together. You're, you're basically putting Eric Armstead behind the eight ball here. And, and so the question I've got for you, David, is what, what kind of... If Eric Armstead were to be successful... What kinds of things do you need to see either out of him as a player or out of the 49ers schematically in order to mask his deficiencies athletically?
1: So, I mean, I don't know. He's going to have to learn how to rush off the edge, right? He's going to have to learn how to to kind of bend the corner and and get... I think him as a rusher now and what you, you think of him being successful because he's had, you know, uh, even though the sack numbers might not be there and, and some people will point to that, he's been a productive pass rusher when he's been healthy and on the field, um, you know, during his two seasons so far Uh, there, there hasn't been any question about that. So the problem is most of that success has come from the interior, right? Lined, uh, you know, he obviously spent time head up, you know, or or on the tackle a little bit in that three, four scheme. Um, But when he went into sub package, he was primarily kicking down inside and, and, you know, uh, aligning over one of the guards essentially. Um, And I think that's, should still be his place uh in this defense right so when you go to your nickel package and you go uh you know drop a linebacker off he should be kicking inside when he's on there most of the time i mean i'm sure they'll have uh you know some snaps where they have buckner thomas and armstead all on the field and and one of those guys is going to end up um being on the edge and they're not you know obviously both can't be in the, the the interior there um but I, I expect those three to more rotate in that position. So in, in base situations then where he's going to be on the outside and going to be at Leo, uh, I think he just has to do enough. I mean, he's going to, he's not going to have a lot of run responsibility there. Uh, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like it's hard. I I just don't, I have a hard time seeing him carry out that role successfully. Like, I I I don't see us coming out of this season right saying okay we don't need to address that position because Eric Armstead was so good in that role like he's still a much better fit at the other spots they just want to for whatever reason see if it can happen because maybe they don't have you know too many better options or whatever the 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 rationale is there um, I don't know I, I I just don't really see it making a lot of sense.
0: Would you say that the best case scenario for someone like an Eric Armstead next year, just based on his athletic profile and based on the defense we're trying to run, is that he is the weak side end on on rush downs or downs one and two, and then in obvious pass situations or on third and you know six plus, you bring in someone like an Elvis Dumerville, uh, Elvis. I don't know why I call him Elmis, uh, but Elvis Dumerville to to rush the passer in situational situations. For, wow, this is <laughs> going to be words, apparently. It's going to be one of those that's a podcast. But uh, where you bring him in as a situational pass rusher and, and Eric Armstead's just kind of that weak side run defender most times.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, everybody... It was really funny when everybody... Uh, I think we mentioned might have mentioned this during the last podcast, but when when he was signed, um and, and you got that flood of tweets, it's like, oh yeah, Elvis Dumerville's the the starting Leo immediately. That was everybody's initial reaction. And it's like, well, he's probably not gonna play on base at all. And and we saw, I think I forget if it was Sala or if it was uh if it was the D-line coach, um, but one of them mentioned that like, yeah, in an ideal world, ninety percent of his snaps this season are passed down situations. And and that's absolutely what you should expect, is When yeah, Armstead, may be that Leo, he may be that weak side guy, you know, when in the base situations there and uh, he's not going to have a ton of pass responsibility. But as soon as they go into the sub packages, if he's on the field, most of the time he's going to be on the interior and guys like Doomerville, Ahmad Brooks, uh, Aaron Lynch, Eli Harold, those are going to be the guys that are playing outside on the edge uh, on, on the majority of snaps, I think.
0: Now, the big end is going to be Solomon Thomas, and he and when we call him the big end, we mean he's going to be the end to the strong side that's going to play kind of a two-gap uh, two technique most of the time. Do you see any problem with... Because they want to play him the Michael Bennett role. So they want to play him, you know, kind of head up on a tackle, and then maybe move him over or kick him inside. Do you think that is the best role for him, or do you think that you're going to see... Because now you've got too many people who need to be inside on pass rushing downs. You've got Buckner... You've got Armstead who should move it inside, and now, maybe, and now maybe Solomon Thomas as well. Or do you think the team just says, no, nah, Thomas, like, go ahead and play the role that you played mostly at Stanford, because that's what we know you can do, because we really need to kick Eric Armstead inside. Or what happens to him when, when Doomreal comes in, does Armstead go off? What, what does that rotation look like? And I guess a better formulation of the question is, what do you think are the four best pass rushers on the team in a nickel situation that you want to get after the quarterback?
1: Um, so I think first, uh, I, the notion that they have too many interior guys is really silly to me. Um, one, we should not be having guys on on the defensive line playing the absurd number of snaps that DeForest Buckner played last year. DeForest Buckner topped a thousand snaps last year. Um, from week four on, I believe it was, he played in like ninety seven percent of the snaps or more in all but one game. Like, that's insane. That should not be happening for a defensive line. Um, so the idea that I can only have two guys that are ever on the f- uh, the field on the interior, um, you know, our favorite. Oh, my God. I saw this article from fucking Cone and it was talking about like,
0: why would you do that to yourself? Somebody put you that it in
1: my mentions and I was just like, God damn it. Uh, No. And and it was just like, yeah, uh, oh, so they're going to go to Nickel, and then uh, Buckner and Thomas are inside, and Armstead's on the bench, and that's how it's going to be all the time. It's like, no, they can still play all, like, they can have a rotation where those three play about 66% of the snaps, right? Play about two-thirds of the snaps uh, from those two positions. And, yeah, Zagonia.
0: Zagonia said that specifically. He said, you know, you don't want him to play that many snaps because that's just, I think he, he called it criminal was yes. his exact quote or something like that. And and God, Saul, it's so Saul sad a Buckner call a criminal I think. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. ideally and, and we're we're Buckner having Buckner guys... said Buckner said he tapped his helmet once in like week 5 and no one came in and so I was like, "Well, not doing that again." And then <laughs> never tapped his helmet to come off the field again. That's just sad.
1: Yeah, I mean they mentioned the new coaching staff has mentioned that they want guys, you know, ideally uh I think they said in like the Fifty to sixty percent, or it was like 500, 600 snaps. I think was the the terms that, that he put it in. Ideally, yeah. we want a rotation of guys that are all in that kind of five, six hundred snaps, um, because then they're going to be out there and they're they're able to give uh, you know much greater effort uh, mm-hmm. in, on those plays and hopefully be more effective. And so I think they're in a position now where y- you the, the idea that you can have too many pass rushers, too many interior pass rushers, is insane. You need all of those guys that you can get. You need as many pass rushers from whatever spot that you can get. Just like you you can't have too many, you know, cornerbacks that can cover people. Like that's stuff that you need. That's how you win in today's NFL. And so they're gonna be able to have a rotation out there where they can have two of these guys on the field uh it at most all times and have them be fresh and hopefully be effective and and limit the risk of injury and all of these things um, you know, that are gonna be ultimately very good. I think getting to the what is the, okay, it's a critical situation. Who are my four best guys that I'm putting along that front when I know it's going to be passed? Um, to me, I'm probably going... Man, I think I'm still probably going those three plus Doomerville. Um, it's tempting to say maybe... I go with two of them and then Doomerville and Lynch. I don't know. It depends where Lynch is at kind of, I think if Lynch is the guy that, uh, was basically Lynch before last season, then I think Lynch belongs in that conversation coming off the edge for sure. Um, but right now, yeah, I think Armstead Buckner on the interior, Thomas and Doomerville on the outside would, would probably be the direction that I would lean. I think of the three, you know, first round pick the guys that everybody wants to talk about. I I think Thomas to me has, the most potential as an outside rusher. Um so I think that's the guy that I would lean kicking out there more often than not if those three are going to be on the field at the same time.
0: So lastly, let's talk about the linebackers and what this does to the linebackers because of course you've got the positions. You've got Mike, Sam and Will. You, Mike is your middle linebacker, Sam is your strong and and Will is your weak one. Uh again, NFL coaches in their naming. Uh <laughs> it's it's real simple. It's real simple, but uh, we talked about a little earlier, which is what happens to the Mike linebacker when you're in a 4-3 defense. Is there's just more bodies that get to that middle linebacker. And and this is especially if when a play is going to the strong side. You, you've got something like the, the Sam linebacker where Brooks is going to have to play off the line a little bit more and probably going to have more coverage responsibilities. And then you've got the Will, which is usually the weak side guy, doesn't see very many blockers, especially in run game. And he's free to kind of fly around and hit people. Based on those changes to, what, you know, to to the roles of the linebackers, do you think any of the linebackers that we have on the roster right now, whether it be that are likely to start, whether it be uh, Ahmad Brooks, Navarro Bowman, or um, uh, Malcolm Smith, or Reuben Foster, which I guess if I really I don't understand. Reuben Foster, that, let's
1: what, just go. Uh, let's operate under that assumption. That's the world I want to live in.
0: Do you think any of those linebackers are going to have trouble transitioning to any of this new this new 4-3 universe?
1: Um, I'd say the Sam spot is probably the spot I'm most concerned with, but it's simultaneously the least important. Um, So that's the one that's on the field, the least amount, right? That's the guy that comes off when you go from base to your sub packages. Um, I don't love the options that they have there. I mean, Brooks uh, seems to be the guy that's, uh, getting the first team reps there right now and is, is probably, I think going to end up with that role. Uh, I, I don't love it. Uh, I think it'll be fine. Like it's, it's not like that he's going to be terrible there necessarily, but, um, he is going to have to, you know, play a little bit more off the ball than he has, uh, in, in recent season. I, I think he did that, you know, he's done it a little bit there. There's been some times, right. Where, I think during the Harbaugh years, they would put him at inside linebacker during goal line situations and stuff like that. And I think he played a little bit of uh, inside linebacker, off ball linebacker when he was in Cincinnati. Um, but it's been a while, right? He's been predominantly an on the line of scrimmage, you know, edge guy in that uh, that three, four scheme that they've been running for a while. And so I don't I don't love him off the ball. I don't love him in coverage necessarily. Like, I think that's concerning. I mean, I don't love him necessarily as a player anymore like dude's old and hasn't been very good in a couple of years so and he's
0: about to he's about to rack up like what <laughs> nine million i think is his cap number yeah he's uh, he man God. he he's gonna he's gonna see every dollar of that like 50 million dollar contract he signed in like good, 2011 good or whatever for it was. him i
1: thought he's gonna be cut like every year for the last like every three year years or some shit like that uh i mean go keep keep cashing them checks man i guess whatever but uh, I'm never
0: gonna hate it when a football player gets that money. No, never,
1: not not at all. So I, I think um, that's the spot that I'm I'm probably most concerned with. Navarro Bowman, I'm not worried about. You know, with him, uh, the the concern is health. Right? Is is he the same player after suffering those two big injuries? Um, the the scheme switch and any kind of difference in those positions is is not something I'm concerned about with him. And I think uh, Foster, you know, obviously if if healthy and ready to go, as it seems like he will be uh, slots in at that will linebacker spot. I mean, he's going to kill it there. Uh, you know, health is, is really the only concern for those two guys. So I think, uh, when you look at, you know, what they're going to have in sub packages, right. And we, and just, just the Mike and will on the field and it's just Bowman and foster in an ideal world. Um, I think that's a really good spot to be in. I think you really, uh, like that combination obviously. So yeah, I, I'm not too concerned from a transition standpoint there. It's really just that Sam that's a, a little bit more iffy.
0: So I think that does it. I think that's everything we had to cover uh, so far, this go-around on, on the scheme edition. I guess really the only thing we've got left is trying to figure out the call to action, which I did not uh, um, I did not think of any.
1: I, I think we got to go middle out, right?
0: Middle out, yeah. yeah hashtag yeah, yeah, yeah. middle no, out. You're right. Yep. Middle out. Yep, you got it. Um, so that's going to be the call to action this week is going to be hashtag middle out. If you have not watched the last season of Silicon Valley, <laughs> you should. Uh, if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, just get out just stop just, just go. go
1: find it it's on stop right now get it hbo yes. go or hbo now or whatever
0: and, or borrow uh, it from your friend because yeah, you because know i think care. there's probably only one person in the world that still has an hbo subscription and everything else is just a pirated hbo and go it's live. my mom and i told her
1: that she can never get rid of it because i that's, yeah. <laughs> that's her lasting gift for me you have to that's always right. subscribe to hbo
0: that's right <laughs> so we covered a lot of stuff this episode: odds and even, odd and even fronts, the Okie front, the Bear front, the Over front, the Under front, gap assignments, uh, pass rush elements, uh, and and of course 49ers transition points. We are going to have some pictures, images uh, up on Niners Nation to go along with this because we know sometimes it's difficult to just get everything orally everyone thinks i say orally when i say that word but no it's aurally, a-u-r-l-l-a-u-r-a-l-l-o-y to do with the ears my friend to do with the ears uh i said that sure. in a meeting once at work didn't go well trust me <laughs> they all just thought i was talking about taking it orally uh yeah it, it didn't it didn't go well uh, um yeah. but yeah i am glad to be back i'm back from emergency mexico trips No more of that bullshit. Uh, And it's Ski Month, dude. What are are we going to cover next week?
1: Uh, Ski Month. So, you know, obviously we focused on the front uh, a lot uh, with the defense here. In this episode, I think we're going to move things back and take a look at the secondary. And, um, you know, kind of like we did here. I think that, you know, not only did we want to focus in on um, things that the Niners are going to be doing specifically, but also just kind of give you, I think, a a pretty solid foundation, hopefully, for how the front operates and, um, you know, how all those pieces kind of work together going to try to go for a similar approach with the secondary. So go over kind of some basics there that, that I think apply most everywhere and then get into some single high stuff uh, that we're going to see a lot from the Niners this year.
0: So that's going to be next week. Uh, We are going to be right back on schedule with an episode every week. You can find us wherever it is that you download your podcast, Google play iTunes. And if you do have us or, or find us on one of those two services, most definitely leave a review. It helps other people find us and It helps us out tremendously. So thanks again for tuning in. If you're at this part of the podcast, hashtag middle out. And as always, go Niners.